Good morning. It is Sunday morning, September 4th, and uh, we are doing a, another live session on this continuing topic. I want to continue sharing the evidences and the ideas and themes that Joseph Smith used entheogenic sacraments in order to help provide the extra celestial visionary materials of his early Mormon converts and followers. And in not a derogatory nature, but in more of an explanatory historical context, which rather obviously has been left out of the official Mormon version of history. This particular interpretation is not comfortable for them for whatever reason. So we are providing the extra context. I'll put it that way. That's a good way to do it. Uh, a good way to say it, that this extra context of uh, potential Amanita muscaria mushroom usage, Doctora, uh, ginseng root, which Joseph Smith's father was very heavily involved in, uh, etc. The natural use of herbs in ways for healing, both spiritually and physically. All of these issues uh, have either been minimized because they're tr they're considered trivial and irrelevant or not worthy of the greatness and stature of Joseph Smith. And so through the centuries since his death, Joseph Smith has more or less been mythologized, but through a very carefully selected filter. And it has led to a, at best, a an incomplete understanding of Joseph Smith, and at worst, a complete caricature. My proposal is that the caricature is the way it has ended up being so that we really don't know much about Joseph Smith, nor the reasons why of all of the different denominations, of all of the different peoples that were floating around in his area, both in his childhood, his young adult life, and his adult life. Uh, him and his followers seemed to have gotten tapped into, as it were, uh, tapped into these celestial realms on a much grander scale, both uh, on an individual basis and as a group basis. We would propose, I say we, I mean these authors of this excellent study with which I am sharing with you, The Entheogenic Origins of Mormonism, A Working Hypothesis by Beckstead, Blankenagel, Nikoni, and Winkleman and with help from uh, the LDS historian Don Bradley, has proposed and given us new insights, which I am sharing in this series of videos. Hey, JB, maybe. Welcome. Good morning. Beautiful skies here on the excellent. It's beautiful here, too. So excited to hear more about this herb theory. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some more now. Remarkably interesting. And I do wish to publicly acknowledge her and thank her very much. Um, one of my patrons and a gal whom I was on the uh, Joe Swick Mormon Mystic group for years, uh, Ms. Nobody uh, is her handle on Shade's message board. She communicated with me a few days 
ago, and she asked me if I had seen Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. And I said, no, I have not. And she very kindly sent me a copy of it, The Unseen Realm, by Michael Heiser. Now, Michael Heiser was one of those whom are serious biblical scholars. Sincerely, he's the real deal. I like Heiser. In fact, and I was going to get it out, and I didn't. It's behind me somewhere in that rat race called the library. Uh, I was going to... Uh, Look into uh, Michael Heiser had a debate on the Council of the Gods with David Bakavoy, a well-known former LDS scholar of the Hebrew Bible, whom also has the IQ of a hundred trillion compared to the rest of us on biblical Hebrew and the the context of the ancient Israelites and the ancient Canaanites and the Perizzites and Hivites and Hittites and Assyrians and Mesopotamians and Sumerians and all that. I mean, these guys are just miles beyond where we can ever, where we can ever even attain. But I was able to acquire his doctoral dissertation on the Council of the Gods, and it is stellar. It is beyond incredible. I'm very grateful to possess that. So I have kind of kept track with Dr. Heiser off and on through the years. And uh, he has written several books, many of which I have not been able to keep up with. And uh, Ms. Nobody sent me this book. And I want to, this is The Unseen Realm. I'm going to read from for just a couple of moments because this, astoundingly enough, is exactly parallel from the biblical scholarship point of view, from the evangelical, non-critical thinking biblical scholarship, Dr. Heiser, who is really trying to up the game for Christians and their knowledge, just like we are trying to do with the Mormon scholars and their knowledge, and helping to prevent them continuing and even further deteriorating the Mormon historical context of Joseph Smith and Mormonism itself through a phony and false faith-promoting selective agenda of evidence, which is simply cheating. And let's call it for what it is. There is no euphemism. This is not faithful scholarship. You are not being a faithful scholar like Neil A. Maxwell loved to promote uh, disciple scholarship. That's bullshit. You're not being a disciple scholar. You're being a liar. You're being a deceiver when you deliberately leave out stuff in your crafting of history. Let's be blunt. Michael Heiser is the same way on the Christian side of this. Now, and, and that's what I really like about it. He has some wonderful reviews of it. I'm looking very forward to reading this book, and I will share information from it with you on my videos. It is published in 2015, Lexham Press. So it's relatively new. I'm very grateful to Ms. Nobody. Thank you so much for your kindness of getting this book to me. And now let me let me share a couple of ideas uh, about this that has direct relevance to the subject I'm in right now. And then we will carry on from here. Oh, hey, Debbie Joe. Yes, all is good. Very, very, very nice to see you again. Welcome. Uh, so from Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, we all have watershed moments in life, critical turning points where from that moment on, nothing will ever be the same. 
One such moment in my own life, the catalyst behind this book, came on a Sunday morning in church while I was in graduate school. I was chatting with a friend who, like me, was working on his PhD in Hebrew studies, and I was killing a few minutes before the event started, right? So I don't recall much of the conversation, though I'm sure it was something about Old Testament theology, but I'll never forget how it ended. My friend handed me his Hebrew Bible open to Psalm 82, and he simply said, here, read that. Look at it closely. God, Elohim is the Hebrew here, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim again. Now, I've indicated that Hebrew wording that caught my eye and put my heart in my throat. The word Elohim occurs twice in this short verse. Other than the covenant name Yahweh, it's the most common word in the Old Testament for God, and the first use of the word in this verse worked fine, uh, but since I knew my Hebrew grammar, I saw immediately that the second instance needed to be translated as plural. There it was, plain as day. The God of the Old Testament was part of an assembly, a pantheon of other gods. Well, needless to say, I didn't hear a word of the sermon. My mind was reeling. How is it possible that I've never seen that before? How is it possible that we have never seen Joseph Smith's use of entheogenic substances to induce visions and heavenly beings visiting him and his early converts. We're in the same boat here. Let me go on. I've read through the Bible seven or eight times. Well, who among us hasn't studied the history of Mormonism for decades, right? I'd been to seminary, I'd studied Hebrew, I'd taught Bible college at a Bible college for five years. What did this do to my theology? The question for us, what does entheogenic usage in early Mormon sacramental theology and covenants and the Mormon endowment do to our theology? That is a pertinent point. Well, I'd always thought, and I had taught my students, that any other gods referenced in the, in the Bible were just idols. Uh, so as easy and comfortable as that explanation was, it did not make sense here in Psalm 82. The God of Israel isn't part of a group of idols. But I couldn't picture him running around with other real gods either. See, this was the Bible, not Greek mythology. <laughs> I love how he distinguishes the two, and in my suspicion, that's somewhat artificial. <laughs> but there it was in black and white. The text had me by the throat, and I couldn't shake free. Hey, Matt Woodruff, no, you're not late. Hey, T.O.G., good to see you again. Oh, no kidding. Uh, good job. Thank you for showing up. So anyway, uh, I immediately set to work to try to find some answers. I soon discovered that the ground I was exploring was a place where evangelicals had feared to tread. The explanations I found from evangelical scholars were disturbingly weak, and that's just exactly what we find with our Mormon scholars, isn't it, on the entheogenic materials? Yes, actually, they don't even talk about it. They just skip it, hoping no one will notice. See, the Boyd K. Packer style of insipidly ridiculous history. That's Boy K. Packer's legacy. Uh, 
he will forever go down in history as being one of the worst of the worst, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, fundamentally dishonest for God. And it's, it has backfired. Hopefully, they won't keep replacing him with more of his kind of idiot dolthood, but we'll see. So the explanations I found were disturbingly weak. Uh, some maintained that the gods, Elohim, and the verse were just men, Jewish elders say, or that this, the verse was about the Trinity. I found neither of those could be correct. Psalm 82 states that the gods were being condemned as corrupt in their administration of the nations of the earth, and the Bible nowhere teaches that God appointed a council of Jewish elders to rule over foreign nations. See? So in other words, they were the evangelicals are adding modern-day constructs and excuses for not having to deal with what the real history was. Exactly the boat we're in, and that's why I'm doing my videos. We are in this same boat, yes. The history as propounded by the orthodox organized religion simply falls apart on close investigation. It is a house of cards, both in the evangelical world and the Mormon world. It's time to reassess with serious intent uh, of not ignoring all of those so-called trivial little irrelevancies, but that's Boyd K. Packer's interpretation of some things. That's Dallin Oak's interpretation of some things. Who's to say that's actually a valid interpretation? It is we are discovering with this entheogenic concept that it is the trivial little irrelevant details that actually help solidify the case. But if it's ignored, you're never going to know there is a case. That's why I do my videos. Yes, because we're after truth. So anyway, he goes on and on and on. When I looked beyond the world of evangelical scholarship, he says, I discovered that other scholars had churned out dozens of articles and books on Psalm 82 and Israelite religion. When we look outside the realm of Mormon history, we do find actual credible information on the entheogenic use in sacraments and the endowment for Joseph Smith. We are in the same boat here. This is fascinating. They had left no stone unturned in ferreting out parallels between the Psalms and its ideas and the literature of other civilizations of the biblical world, in some cases matching the Psalms' phrases word for word. Their research brought to light other biblical passages that echoed the content of Psalm 82. I came to realize that most of what I had been taught about the unseen world in Bible college and seminary had been filtered by English translations or derived from sources like Milton's Paradise lost. In other words, he was not getting the proper context in his seminary any more than we did in ours. Isn't this interesting? You begin to see a parallel here with the serious problem, the serious issue with organized religion. It's not about teaching the truth and getting us to understand reality, is it? Now, that's spooky in some respects, but that's serious enough that we need to do digging if it is truth we value, which it is that we do value, and hence my videos. I know I'm, I'm, I'm still repeating that, but I'm repeating it for a very gosh damn good reason, because I'm stone cold serious. I don't want to listen to Boyd K. Packer. I want to see what the history is. So the Sunday morning, a fallout forced my decision. My conscience wouldn't let me ignore my own Bible in order to retain the theology with which I was comfortable. Was my loyalty to the text or to the Christian tradition? 
Is our loyalty to the text of the truth of history or to the Mormon interpretation? We are in the same boat, man. True story. Did I really have to choose between the two? Unfortunately, yes, you do. I wasn't sure, but I knew that what I was reading in Psalm 82, taken at face value, simply didn't fit the theological patterns I'd always been taught, and yet there had to be answers. We are all in the same boat. That is why I study the topics that I do here on Mormonism Live and in my videos and on my podcast at thebackyardprofessor.org. Absolutely. Go check those out. After all, the passage I had only now noticed had also been read by apostles like Paul and by Jesus, for that matter. If I couldn't help find any of these answers, I would just have to put the pieces together myself. Mormon scholars are not going to help us understand this entheogenic issue without some serious digging on our own, and this is what I'm sharing with you in my videos. That journey's taken me 15 years, and it's led to my books. It has not been easy. It came at risk and discomfort. Boy, does it. Yeah, for all of us. Friends, pastors, colleagues at times misunderstood my questions and my rebuttals of their proposed answers. Conversations didn't always end well. That sort of thing happens when you demand. That sort of thing happens when you demand that creeds and traditions get in line behind the biblical text. We're in the same boat. It is the Mormon creeds and traditions that have given us the faulty, rather seriously, strenuously incomplete, and hence contradictory history that we have inherited, and it's time to get to the issue. Yes, we want to get to the history, not the traditional way of interpreting the history through correlation. Correlation be damned. You can quote me. I did say that. Backyard professor says, correlation be damned. Let's get to the historical reality. That's what we're after. Clarity eventually prevailed, and so he made his doctoral dissertation based on Psalm 82 because of this incident. It's what he's saying about his journey that I'm trying to share with you here. I still believe in the uniqueness of the God in the Bible. I still embrace the deity of Christ. But if we're being honest when we affirm inspiration, then how we talk about those and other doctrines must take into account the biblical text. In other words, he is saying, rather than just take the common organized religion, traditional interpretations as the basis for our reality, we also must compare it with the full historical text of the Bible for the evangelical Christians and for the Mormon history for us who were Mormon and who were apologists for Mormonism, etc., or who are asking questions, we must now begin to take in the full historical context. We are in the same boat here. The, it, it, the parallels here just amazed me when I read this this morning. I just picked this up this morning to read a little bit of it first. So, and now what you'll read in this book won't overturn the important apple carts of Christian doctrine any more than what we're sharing about the entheogenic aspect of the sacraments that Joseph Smith used is going to overturn Joseph Smith and Mormonism. It doesn't do anything of the sort, but it does give us a firm and larger context with which to make better, more informed choices. Now, is that what Mormonism is trying to prevent us from doing? Do I really have to answer that? <laughs> 
right? So anyway, what you'll read in this book will change you. You will never be able to look at your Bible the same way again. What you see in my videos will change you. You will never be able to see Mormon history the same again. Same boat. Same boat, just a different organized religion is what is happening. Because he's finding that in Christianity, and especially evangelical Christianity, the contexts have been smoothed over with a doctrinal purity, which is basically someone else's point of view who didn't like some aspects of the Bible, so they either ignored it or recontexted it just exactly like correlation in Mormonism functions. And while they say, yes, this will help the Holy Ghost testify to you of the truth, I simply disagree. It doesn't do anything of the sort. Not at all. Seeing the Bible, one more and then I'll get on with the topic. Sorry, I, I just loved this introduction, the parallels here. Uh, the same boat that we're all in is really interesting. Seeing the Bible through the eyes of an ancient reader requires shedding the filters of our traditions and presumptions. Amen, Brother Heiser. Now he's talking to Christians. I'm talking to Mormons. Seeing the Mormon history, if I may change this just a little bit, through the eyes of Joseph Smith requires shedding the filters of our traditions and presumptions. That's what I'm doing. Yes, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, and then the, oh, and then he talks about how they filter the text. He talks about this for a couple of pages, very important. And so they filter the text, just like Mormons, filter the history. And then the whole mosaic of the text comes into focus. When you look at the larger picture, this is precisely what I'm doing with all of the history. It's what D. Michael Quinn did. It's what made him so interesting. It's what Brooks did. It's what made him so interesting on the hermetic aspects. It's what Lance Owens is doing with the Kabbalah and Joseph Smith on and on and on and on. Once we get a much broader context, the actual mosaic comes into focus and we begin to see the real history. And based on that, we can make much finer, more realistic assumptions and decisions and choices. But Mormonism doesn't want to give you that full context because it only wants you to make one choice. Join us at age eight and then follow the covenant path. It's a brainwash. It's just a brainwash. Heiser says the same thing about the evangelical Christian attempts to take away the interesting ideas in the Bible that they either can't understand or they don't like, so they throw it out. That doesn't show any respect at all for the scripture or for history. These evangelical churches are very similar to the Mormon church in that regard. Now, that's enough. That, that's all I'm going to say about that, but really, truly, The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. That's the book I've been quoting from this morning. A dear friend of mine Gave me a copy. Thank you. Bless your heart, Miss Nobody. And I will read this book and share some more information from it with you. But let's get on to Joseph Smith and Entheogenic Sacraments and Endowments. Once again, sorry, I'm being a slob. Oh, crud. 
slopped all over myself. Typical backyard professor move. Once again, this, this is not in any intent to disparage anything about Joseph Smith. We are not about disparaging Joseph Smith. We simply want to come to an understanding. We want to come to an understanding of why we have been so damn deceived in our Mormon religion. That's what we're after. What is the truth? And then we can step correctly, not on the covenant path, but on the real path. That's where we make progress. That's what I would propose. So on to this subject once again. And uh, oh, and I wanted to start with esoteric Christianity. Last night, I ended on the note of the uh, Native American uh, usage of uh, the datura and other mushrooms and other hallucinogenic and important substances which helped them in their shamanic uh, ascents to heaven and to get in touch with the spirit world. That is what they called it. Now, and this, anybody who's read Merce Iliada will know that this is actually the Siberian shaman's uh, hero quest uh, to ascend the ladder of heaven. This ties in with the biblical materials of Jacob's ladder without question, the ascent of Elijah into heaven on what? The chariot. This is very important, very, very early Merkava, Kabbalistic, Jewish symbolism, mysticism, visionary quest, etc. The, the parallels and precedents are just virtually all over the flipping place. And it's wonderful to look into, right? So Joseph Smith was influenced by several categories of esotericism from a young age, just as sure as we know, he was influenced by Freemasonry also, which, according to the greatest of Freemasons, Albert Pike, actually went back into where? The ancient Hermetic Egyptian tradition. So we see all of this coalescing from the very beginning in Joseph Smith's life, not only through the Freemasonic associations of virtually all of his very close family members until he joined in the 1840s also, and with his scribes, with his fellow Mormon converts, all or many of whom were Freemasons, we see the exact same compunction, the association, the interaction and interrelationship with this herbal entheogenic context in a culture which obviously utilized it. Joseph Smith did not live in a vacuum culturally. Now, that, that was how I was raised, you guys. I mean, nothing Joseph Smith learned came from any men who mingle their philosophy with the scripture. That used to be so damn popular in seminary. It made me ill by the time I was in my fourth year. I said, oh my God, how many times am I going to have to hear this? But it did its effect. It presented a negative view of philosophy which I am still very quite resentful of. I have to kind of curb my anger on this still. I still have that upwelling of uh, feeling deceived and all. And now that I'm getting into all Jesus, Davinus, and some of the other really, truly fantastic esoteric metaphysicians, him and Wolfgang Smith and others, I am now beginning to see that philosophy is not the enemy like Mormonism tries to portray 
any more than entheogens are the enemy, like Mormonism tries to portray, either through ignoring it or denigrating it. They say, oh, well, you're just trying to make Joseph Smith evil. That's how stupidly ignorant they really are, because this doesn't make Joseph Smith stupidly evil. They won't know that, so that's why I'm talking to you and why you're attending instead of them when it's them that need to attend. <laughs> anyway, oh, and by the way, you guys, um, someone asked me in my previous video from last night in the comment section, I uh, believe it was you, T.O.G., I think, uh, about the about the link to the Sunstone presentation that these guys presented on entheogens and Joseph Smith. Uh, hallucinations. Did Joseph Smith drug the Mormons? I put that link in the comments. So you're welcome to go there and look at them after you're done watching this. So anyway, so Joseph Smith had a great influence, including of esoteric Christianity, spiritual alchemy. Now the alchemical uh, the really cool thing about this is, man, when I was uh, really involved with Joe Steve Swick, he he helped me understand the serious, good, uplifting, overarching power of the alchemical materials. And these also are associated with Joseph Smith. There's no no wonder Joe kept sending me that direction. And I was smart enough to go and grab some of the literature and of speculative Freemasonry. Now, of course, this comes from Lance Owen's excellent studies, whom you really ought to look up on the internet as well. Significantly, some members of these esoteric schools of thought had an interest in entheogenic use, and they encoded their knowledge in esoteric works of art. Now, here's where I'm going to blow your mind today. This is so fun. This is so cool. <laughs> We're going to show some early Christian and medieval art. I'll show it to you. I've even got it in color of their spiritual knowledge and understanding. So during the 13th century, esoteric Christian artists painted biblical themes associated with entheogenic mushrooms. Now, what are medieval Christian artists doing painting mushrooms? and Jesus. Now, if you think this is just a bad interpretation, let me show you the picture. Oh, hold on. I've got two more pictures before that. I'm jumping the gun. I apologize. Okay, so I'll, I'll show you the picture. Um, and there again. There's an Eden panel, what they call an Eden panel, found in St. Michael's Church, Germany. This circulated about 1240, so we're in the medieval times, right? And it shows Adam and Eve standing and a serpent coiled on a tree in front of a spotted Amanita muscaria mushroom cap. And this was circulated, takes the Edenic tree in another figure also takes on the form of an Amanita muscaria circa 1291 fresco found in Plain Couralt Abbey Indra in France. And here it is. There, oh man, sorry, I'm going to have to do it this way. Oh, I hope that doesn't bleed through. Crying out loud. There it is. There it is. There's that wonderful picture of 
Adam and Eve, the serpent, the tree of life, and at the base is the Amanita muscaria. There is the tree of the garden in Christian art depicted as a mushroom. That's the tree of life. I mean, wow. <laughs> you go, oh, holy cow. Get this next one, you guys. Oh, 218, 219. Okay, yeah. I'm... <laughs> this next one is really amazing. This is from the Nativity, and it's the Petrus Christus. This is 1452, so... 40 years just before Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, Jesus was painted laying on a mushroom as the manger 40 years earlier in 1452. There it is. Wow. I mean, that is astonishing when you stop and think about what the Christians were painting and presenting. Now, that's incredible. The relative abundance of Christian Amanita Muscaria syncretic art led Antonio Eschotado to conclude, it seems indisputable that there is a connection between visionary mushrooms and Christianity. Now, John Allegro in the 1970s wrote a book for which it destroyed his career because his timing was so bad. Back then, we were all still so paranoid and ignorant in our knowledge that the association of Jesus with mushrooms and here eat partake of my blood, which was the juice of the mushroom, and here eat partake of my body, which was the mushroom, that was too scandalous. Carl Ruck has updated uh, John Allegro, which I do have and I have read, and it is utterly fascinating. Carl Ruck's main texts update John Allegro to where it is even more powerfully shown that the early Christian sacrament, Brian Murarescu, the immortality key, I'm telling you straight, you must read Murarescu. There is no choice not. This is by far one of the great books that actually got me directly involved in all of this. The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. There's his name, Brian C. Murarescu. A must-read book. Very pleasant. It's his travelogue into this discovery of early Christian entheogenic use. And there is scientific evidence now, scientific tests being utilized on many ancient archaeological materials where they can test the remains of what was drank out of those cups, and it is spiked wine. This is not just religious gobbledygook or mumbo-jumbo. They are now doing scientific analysis of just these things. So, Exciting new developments coming up. So here is how it goes. Let me keep reading here. Um, I got sidetracked there a little bit, but a very necessary sidetrack because it's just so doggone exciting what's coming up now. So there are reasons to think that given his esoteric background, Joseph Smith or one of his mentors had access to this art, they decrypted it, and then encoded in Smith's teachings, revelations, and ordinances. 
Where then did Joseph Smith first learn about alchemy and esoteric Christianity? A great question. In his book, Magic Mushrooms in Religion and Alchemy, Heinrich, pages 105 to 153, discusses the relationship between esoteric Christianity and using Amanita muscaria as a sacramental meal. According to Heinrich, Jesus unmistakably identifies himself with an entheogenic substance, an elixir of life, and bread of heaven. The Amanita muscaria mushroom shown, Heinrich quotes Jesus telling a woman, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The Amanita muscaria as the elixir, the blood of Christ and the bread, the flesh of Christ. There is the Holy Grail, the chalice of King Arthurian legend. It is the Amanita Muscaria. The Grail of immortality and eternal life is what the knights were after in that quest. This symbolism, these ideas, extend all the way up through all of the ancient myths and the medieval times. And Brian Murrescu and Carl Ruck are huge on that topic. Really huge. So let's keep going on Jesus' theme of the living water. The living water, according to Heinrich, is water-soluble muscimol, the principal psychoactive in Amanita muscaria. Muscimol is excreted and unchanged in the urine, which the shaman or others can consume. Now, supporting Heinrich's argument of entheogenic urine, we note Jesus is saying in John 7, verse 8, He that believeth on me, as the scriptures hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The phrase, out of Jesus' belly, may be describing the entheogenic laced urine. Due to physiological processes, urine, after ingesting Amanita muscaria, is more potent than the tea initially consumed. The entheogenic component of Amanita muscaria is water-soluble, and when extracted with water, turns the water the color of red wine. Further, the mushroom's upturned cap becomes the cup holding the elixir of life, and the mushroom itself becomes the life-giving bread. And that's that picture that I showed you right there of the Amanita muscaria mushroom upturned into a chalice. And they're all they're usually red and white. There are also golden Amanita muscaria that I told you about Lucy Max Smith's uh, first vision last night. Now here's Jesus. He he quotes Jesus telling his disciples this. He says, "I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you." Anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, as I, who am sent by the living Father, myself, 
draw life from the Father. So whoever eats me will draw life from me. This is the bread come down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And is it any wonder that so many of his disciples left him after this sermon? Right? That's a hard saying. And they said so. And he agreed. But he said that's the way it is. He didn't Mickey Mouse and fudge around like uh, today's Mormon modern leaders do. So implied in Heinrich's discussion of these passages is his confidence that anyone using entheogens in a Christian context will experience many of the states described in mystical Christianity, and we now find that Joseph Smith was the same way. He also had that kind of confidence. He knew whereof he spoke, and he knew how to produce the elixir of life in order to get the visions, the eternal life, the priesthood keys, if you will. Whatever you want to call it, it's all good. Your second anointing, etc., which today is obviously a placebo. <laughs> There's videos on people who have received their second anointing, and then they've talked about it, and it's all just hokum. It's all just emotional crying and shedding of tears and goose pimples on the flesh, but there is no real vision. That's because it's a placebo. They're not doing it right. So most of Smith's revelations and teachings suggest the traditional Christian understanding of Jesus, of course. We understand that. Occasionally, he did betray a different view, however. For instance, in 1844, Joseph Smith is reported to have said, I'm the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. He didn't live long enough, did he? <laughs> of course, then I don't know if we're running away from Joseph Smith or the uh, people running the show now. I'm not quite sure. I'm ambiguous about it all. There's still difficulties for sure. So in this statement, Joseph seems to suggest that Jesus did not differ from him, meaning that Smith understood Jesus as shaman-like, as a human and not a god. Interesting, huh? Likewise, Jesus, like Smith, healed the lame arm of Mrs. John Johnson and raised William Huntington from the dead. So the idea, the theme on spiritual alchemy, let me jump on this real quick. Spiritual alchemy is a very interesting topic in early Mormonism. Well, and today as far as that goes. Now, Lance Owens, he argues that Joseph Smith certainly learned about the Philosopher's Stone and alchemy's uh, transmutational mystery. Alchemy became a subject of several artists in Europe. And I've got some more pictures to share with you here just shortly. Boy, is that light bugging you? There we go. Sorry, I didn't notice that light until just now. That might be better to look at. Sorry about that. Alchemy became a subject of several artists in Europe. Owens argues that Smith likely learned about alchemy from a physician named Lumen Walters, who was a distant cousin of Smith's future wife and a member of the circle associated with the early treasure quests, of which the young Joseph Smith was a member of. 
Agreeing with Owens, D. Michael Quinn reasons that Walters was Smith's teenage mentor and occult advisor. We also believe that he was uh, an advisor and a spreader of interesting information to Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr., as well as absolutely everyone involved in the treasure quest, of course. So in Science Alchemy and the Great Plague of London, William S. Shelley states that alchemical writings concerned chemical processes from their late antique beginnings until the Renaissance. Spiritual alchemy originated, at least it would appear that it originated, in the early 16th century, and this was when Paracelsus blended his medical practice and alchemy. And with his interest in the Hermetic Platonic tradition, of Renaissance esotericism. So sometime late in the reign of Queen Elizabeth now, alchemical texts seem to be exclusively spiritual, that is, that have no apparent interest in practical laboratory procedures. So English alchemists, and we know several of them, Elias Ashmole, actually he was the one that began the formal uh, Freemasonry in 1717, I believe, if I remember that correctly. Robert Boyle, no, he didn't start it in 1717. He jumped into it earlier, and it was later formally. He didn't live, he wasn't alive in 1717. Duh, he died in 1692. Anyway, and Robert Boyle, they were concerned with one or more substances. Now, here's what spiritual alchemy was about, according to the uh, the Renaissance alchemists. They were concerned with one or more substances termed the red stone, or else they called this the angelic stone, and otherwise whose effects were described as spiritual. So Shelley then argues, these are substances that produced mystical experiences and was implicitly psychoactive, and they associate it with the motive of Israelite manna. Yeah, the hidden manna of Revelation 2.17 even. So the hermetic tradition here, English alchemical literature from the Tudor period onward and in the 12th century theology of the school of Léon, which was in northern France, that spread to Cistercian, Franciscan, and other writers. So Heinrich explores the connection between the alchemy and entheogens, and he includes the allegorical use of the rebus. And this is the rebus. The rebus was a two-headed figure. Very important symbolism. The one wing is red, the other wing is white. Okay, this rebus was a very important figure. Um, it transmits privileged knowledge of entheogenic Amanita muscara. The rebus is a double-headed hermaphrodite linked to the prima materia, that is the primal matter, the original matter. The philosopher's stone. He is also associated, he is also associated with the elixir of life. And it was the elixir of life that helps to ensure health and prevent death. Elixirs of life contained herbs and medicinals that were entheogens. 
We now examine an amulet belonging to Joseph Smith, which he gave to Eliza R. Snow, one of his plural wives, his most esoteric plural wife. Let me see here. This is his alchemical amulet. Now, this is absolutely, positively incredible. Because I've seen this before, but I never put the association together. And the association is now completely obvious. I was completely blind to what it meant because I didn't understand the symbolism. That's why modern Mormonism misses. That's why there's no esotericism anymore in modern Mormonism. The spirituality is gone. They don't understand what they, what they have as a heritage. This is the amulet. Right here. Notice this upper figure. That is the mushroom in its early growth stage. There's a picture of it. There's the depiction of it. And these other two pictures also show the same theme, the same symbolism on the Joseph Smith amulet. Now, this is absolutely amazing that he gave it to his beloved plural esoteric wife, Eliza R. Snow. It shows an inverted mushroom species, probably psilocybin, comparing favorably to the mushroom-appearing tassels dangling from both the belt worn by the rebus. In this rebus, notice the belt. It looks just like it the psilocybe mushroom belt. Isn't that interesting? It's in the medieval Renaissance uh, symbolism as well. That is what is engraved on Joseph Smith's amulet, which he did own. It's reasonable to propose that they represent the same thing, psilocybe species mushrooms. And then he goes into uh, speculative masonry a little bit. I don't want to uh, let me share just a little bit with speculative masonry here. I kind of touched on this somewhat, but their emphasis is different than the new book by uh, by uh, Swick and Bruno and Dr. Latursky on the on the uh, the method infinite in America as in Europe. Speculative Freemasonry. Notice how it, all of this combines the art. The, uh, the Freemasonic stuff, the Renaissance uh, use of psilocybe mushrooms and entheogens, all of it coalesces in Joseph Smith's life. Is it any wonder they had such an absolutely overwhelming, magnificently weird and wild spiritual heritage and experiences which they lived through and recorded, which correlation did not like. And so they left it out. Now we're getting it back. So the speculative masonry in both America and Europe subsumed many mysteries in the ancient world. There is evidence to suggest that these mysteries utilized in theogens. Now this is, this is Brian Murescu. Absolutely. This is Carl Ruck and Gordon Wasserman. Uh, Soma, the Vedic nectar of the gods, nectar itself, Soma, was 
the Amanita muscaria, according to Gordon Wasserman. Very interesting. And he's got a gigantic book on it. I'm not sure where it is in my library where I show it to you, like 450 pages. And he takes it directly from the Vedic texts. It's not his interpreting it. He's taking it from the Vedic texts when they describe this nectar of the gods, this soma of ancient India. See, this was post uh, Indo-European migration times. This the migrations occurred between, say, from ten thousand. Uh, you can go back to twelve thousand BC. Uh, Gobekli Tepe. Now they say dates anywhere from ten to eleven thousand BC up there in Turkey, and uh, they are fine. They're trying to. Uh, Brian Moresco is working with the group who is trying to show that there was entheogenic use way back then in Gobekli Tepe. They're doing some scientific analysis on that. And then the migrations occurred between 10,000 to 6,000 BC. Then they split off. Well, the nectar of the gods, the Soma, in the Vedic tradition that went east, is the exact same thing as the nectar of the gods in the Mycenaean Greek tales. And it is the kukbion of the Eleusinian mysteries the drink, the sacrament, that they partook of. Eleusinian mysteries lasted for 2,000 years, man. This wasn't just a one-time-off and, oh, well, it didn't work, let's quit. <laughs> it was an established repertoire of the entire ancient world. Everyone who was anyone and who wasn't anyone came and went through the Eleusinian mysteries. So these ancient mysteries did utilize entheogens, including the Greek Eleusinian mysteries. And he talks about Wasson, Ruck, and Hoffman. Yeah, their, their text is excellent. The Demeter-Persephone cult in the Greeks and the Dionysian mystery cults, which is, um, I mean, even, uh, even uh, oh, come on, my favorite. Yeah, Dennis R. MacDonald. Even Dennis R. MacDonald in his Gospel of John and the Dionysian Gospel describes how the Gospel of John author was attempting to elevate uh, the greatness of Jesus above Dionysus. And so Jesus's sacrament was more powerful than the Dionysian sacrament, but it was understood that when you drink the God, Dionysius represented the mushroom. Absolutely. That's what caused all the wild frenzies. That's called the Bacchic uh, orgies, the Bacchic mysteries. Yes, was the consumption of the entheogenic so that you could become the god. Well, John wanted, because in Ephesus, I believe they say John was written in Ephesus around that area, that just happened to be a hotbed of Dionysian mysteries. And so the Gospel of John, the author, wanted to elevate Jesus above because he was, he was one of Jesus' followers. So, hey, here's a new god, and he's even greater than the great god twice born Dionysius. And that was the whole point of the Gospel of John, was to improve the entheogenic quality of the deity from just Dionysus into the great Lord Jesus. Fantastically interesting stuff, man. <laughs> you kind of go, wow. So all of these ancient cults parallel or directly tie into the early Christian cult. 
Joseph Smith taps into this. Now, at one time, I didn't think he did, and I was correctly, I was corrected, I should say, and maybe that's what's part of my generated enthusiasm for learning the actual history and getting the greater, more correct context. It's fun. The Roman Phrygian rites for Magna Mater, also very important. Uh, the Mithraic cults of Persia, which I have been studying. Uh, and Ruck has that magnificent book on Miss Mushrooms and Mithras. Fantastic materials, according to Chris Bennett. All of these are suspected to use entheogens in their rites, in their sacred rituals. The imagery of the Masonic Lodge was built with a set and setting that in many ways could be enhanced by the use of entheogens, and the idea that some Masonic drinks may be a remnant of early sacramental portions that contain psychoactive ingredients has been pondered for well over a century. Again, the Freemasons in Joseph Smith's life. Yeah, all of them knew this. Bennett quotes from an 1835 Masonic history by John Fellows, who in rehearsing the entheogens of ancient Egyptians, the entheogenic use by the ancient Pythagoreans and the Druids, refers to a soporific cake of honey and medicated grain medicatus frugibus. In other words, it was drugged along with preparations of poppy and other psychoactive substances with fellow Mason as its target audience. Wow. Bennett then notes fellows informing the candidate that in drinking the potion offered to him during the initiation, it is a Eucharist by which the real presence of the Savior is manifest. And this is precisely the psychological state that Joseph Smith put his followers and converts into first. He did prime their minds. You, In order for this to work, you have to have the right mindset. Joseph Smith being the leader of the group, being the head spiritual shaman, as it were, would teach a sermon. They were fasting and praying. He would indicate what he thought they would see. Then he gave them the sacrament, and then he proclaimed, here's what I'm seeing, and that, of course, bumped them right into their visions, too. Amazing stuff. So in his book, Alchemically Stoned, the 33rd Degree Mason, P.D. Newman, now his book is in 2017, he argues that features of Masonic ceremonies, architecture, and accoutrements strongly suggests some Masonic lodges used entheogenic material from acacia species known to contain the psychedelic uh, DMT. And another one similarly argue for the Hebraic use of the entheogenic acacia tree. And that is in the Old Testament. Yeah, and uh, Merker uh, has an entire book on the ancient Israelite manna as an entheogenic substance, a mushroom. And, and it's a very, very well-researched book. And I've been intending, I want to get to that too. So see, 
this goes way back in time and it goes to various different cultures. I mean, we've explored the Druids and the Greeks and the Freemasons and the ancient Israelites and the early Christians. And now we're up into Mormonism and we're finding the same thing. Once we quit believing and reading only the correlated church approved materials. Is it any wonder they want you to read only their stuff, right? Because once you have your own vision, look, look at it this way. Once you have your own vision, once you have your own um, ascent to heaven and all, well, what's the point of the church? Right? Well, they love your money. I, I think by now, today, that's rather obvious what their goal is. Hundreds of billions of dollars in the bank account. So they're not going to encourage your individual spirituality, which justifiably and quite frankly, logically leads you to be independent because to have a middleman between you and deity is redundant. It's not necessary. We can have our own ascensions. And I am not advocating the use of drugs here. No one under the umbrella of Mormon Discussion, Inc. is advocating the use of drugs here. This can be accomplished through prayer and fasting, which has been shown to change the brain chemistry, fasting, for certain periods of time. That's, no, that's not even, that's not guesswork, that's science. But those who realize that they have direct access to deity. And in point of fact, from the Vedanta Eastern view, from the Vedic literatures, when you consume the Soma, you are the deity. That is what you're awakened to. Then what need of a superfluous, greedy, money-loving, hungry church who doesn't give a damn about your individual salvation. It only thinks of itself, right? So is it any wonder the Mormon church won't teach this stuff? That really shouldn't come as any surprise anymore. There's always going to be someone who needs an organization, who needs the social structure and all. That's good and well. But those of us who don't, of course, the church is going to tell its own member. Oh, well, you know, they label us, right? Oh, those apostates. The Holy Ghost can't work in their, their minds are darkened. They have no idea what's in our minds. How the hell would they know what's happening? But see, it sounds convincing when they use such clever words as, oh, we, we remain faithful. We remain honorable to the priesthood. We keep our loyalty and faithful obedience, and we remain on the covenant path. See, they'll use all this emotional-laden words, concepts, and meanings in order to attempt to make you feel guilty. Oh, you're disloyal to them. But that's only because they've made it disloyal to God. 
for the individual. So given that choice, why would I care whether they think I'm disloyal to them? Of course I'm going to be disloyal to them. They aren't the ones that save us. We, through our awakening, is what happens. Now, Joseph Smith emphasized that. That's why they don't emphasize it. They really don't like Joseph Smith's doctrine, is what I'm trying to tell you, <laughs> right? Now that we're getting it again, it gets real interesting. So anyway, now I'm now I'm just I'm yammering. I apologize, but this stuff is just extremely interesting. So and let's get to the core crux here. I jumped the gun. Here we go. Okay, now let me read the official version. <laughs> so in the ceremonies of the Royal Arch Degree of the York Rite, candidates pass through a series of veils and eventually enter into the divine presence. The veils are our own neurons that aren't firing. The entheogenic sacrament opens up the brain so that more neurons fire in greater abundance and the veil, the filter, is removed and you're able to see the greater reality. There are those in the world who would call that evil and satanic and all. But that's because we're all scared of the unknown, right? Because if you have your own epiphany, if you really realize who we are, organized religion is entirely irrelevant after that. That's what they don't want you to know. So in the Nauvoo Temple Endowment, it is not a mere representation, but is the reality of coming into the heavenly presence through the entheogenic substance. So Mormon historian Andrew Ehat explains, in temples, we have a staged representation of the step-by-step -step ascent into the presence of the eternal while we are yet alive. Yes, and there should have been a change in us. There should have been a change in us, as there certainly was with Moses, when he was caught up to the celestial realms and saw and heard things unlawful to utter. So we argue now that the change required to be caught up to the celestial realms required the administration of an entheogen. A change that, like in Kirtland, would actually produce observable symptoms if this hypothesis is correct. An entheogenic endowment may have been the source of Smith's confidence that converts themselves would, in reality, be caught up into the heavenly realm. This wasn't just for Joseph Smith. This was for everyone. And he taught that. He brought them in. It's okay. Here's what's going to happen. Interesting. So uh, I want to, okay, I want to uh, 
again, there's more on Lumen Walters that is very interesting. Uh, he used a seer stone, for instance, conjuration, animal sacrifice, and likely a hallucinogen to occasion interview with the spirit supposed to have the custody of a particular hidden treasure. That's according to D. Michael Quinn. It was Walters who first suggested to Joseph the idea of finding a book. How convenient. And then sure enough, the sugar is sweet. Joseph Smith found the book. There we go. So, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of the Walters issue. He was one of the early treasure seekers. Therefore, Joseph Smith got the book, uh, and he found the gold plates contained a history of who? The Amerindian ancestors. Once again, that's his That's his platform. Um, Smith used the seer stone to translate, of course, and we hypothesize an entheogen. Now, hot damn, hold the phone. I'm going to read that again. This, I would have never thought. <laughs> oh, wait just a moment here. He was chosen as a treasure seer by the same company that had hired Lumen Walters, and it left Lumen Walters angry and resentful. So residents believed Walters' mantle fell on young Joseph Smith. While acting as a seer for this company, Smith announced that he found the gold plates containing a history of the Amerindian ancestors, just like Walter suggested he ought to do. He then turned around and went and done did it. And he subsequently translated the Book of Mormon. Smith used a seer stone to translate, and we hypothesize an entheogen. The use of the entheogen is suggested by reports of his frequent, of his, Joseph Smith's, frequent intoxication and altered appearance while translating. That's very interesting. And then, of course, Walters and Joseph Smith later reconciled. Lumen Walters actually became a very big disciple of Joseph in the Kirtland era in Kirtland, Ohio. And he had a direct impact on Mormon visionary experiences in the Kirtland period, according to D. Michael Quinn, Early Mormonism in the Mad's Worldview, a book you really ought to read if you haven't. And if you have, reread it again anyway. I like to read both the first and second editions although he really did kind of more or less waste his time responding to the close-minded apologists. They're only going to tout Churchill orthodoxy and pff, those guys. I feel sorry for him at this point. So the medical practice, Walters, of course, was a, a uh, physician, absolutely. And, and they used opium and uh, de-stromonium, and both of which contain hallucinogenic alkaloids, etc., and his laboratory, Walters, could isolate the active anticholinergic component of the doctora plant, and he could do so as an extract or tincture. Tincture. So he would have known the appropriate doses to treat respiratory diseases such as asthma, cough variant asthma, and to relieve pain from sciatica, menstruation, and cancer. Datura was well known, and indeed so closely does it resemble belladonna 
that even in the intoxication which it produces, the same follies are committed. The effects of this plant are well known in some parts of Europe, and the plant was vulgarly called the herb of sorcerers. And it was commonly connected with witchcraft, death, and horror. Walters undoubtedly used the anticholinergics such as A. belladonna, stromonium, and hysocamus niger as treatments and knew of their use as visionary substances. There's one of our keys for Joseph Smith's success right there. They were visionary substances. So in the olden days, roots, herbs, and vegetables. Oh, this is uh, uh, an article on Walters describing psychoactives. In the olden days, roots, herbs, and vegetables were considered highly essential as medicine. And this wasn't just regular medicine, but it was used for nervous disorders by a number of physicians. Among the early physicians to use these ingredients in his prescriptions for nervous disorders was Dr. Lumen Walters, a noted physician and surgeon who practiced in the village of Gorham over a century ago, over half a century ago. That was an article in Geneva, New York, in the Geneva Times. So anyone with access to Francis Barrett's book, The Magus, such as Walters and the Smiths did, would read recipes describing hallucinogenic anticholinergics or herbs of the spirits that could be smoked or they could be used orally or on their skin dermally or intravaginally. Ceremonial magicians in both Europe and America used visionary substances. In the book of John Porta's Natural Magic, published in 1558, a number of recipes both for sleeping potions and madness potions using stramonium, that is datura, and nightshade, uh, and it was a bestseller. He includes Nightshade in his visionary formula also. There were various types of formulas that they could use to induce visions. Frederick G. Williams was an apothecary. This was just eye-opening to me. I was blown away when I read this. This Now, now things begin to somewhat fall into place, right? This is really something. One early convert to Mormonism living in Kirtland was a second-generation German immigrant, Frederick G. Williams. Born in 1787, Williams took up the practice of medicine around 1816. So we're, we're talking 1816 in Joseph Smith's use. Youth, I mean, sorry. After the death of his sister-in-law during childbirth, that's what his incentive was. Williams gravitated toward uh, Thompsonianism medicine and was frequently called an herbal or vegetable doctor. However, Williams did not limit his practice to herbal medicine. Uh, his skill set included setting fractured bones, suturing wounds, and treating burns, cholera, venereal disease, and delivering newborns. So he was a real physician, and he had great experience. Um, and so it, it was, it was in various modes of medicinal usages of various medical emergencies that Williams was practiced in. He himself favored herbs, 
and Smith had great sympathy for this branch of medical practice. Soon after his induction into the religion, Smith appointed Williams to the office of second counselor to the prophet. He was also one of the secret, one of the uh, scribes in the Book of Abraham project. But he was also the second counselor to the prophet. He was Joseph Smith's scribe, and he was the printer for church publications. In other words, he was really deep into Mormonism. As a physician, Williams was universally known throughout this country as an eminent and skillful man. So it wasn't just in early Mormonism, because he had been practicing medicine and and uh, for for a decade or so, and he was well known. He ended up with Joseph Smith. Very interesting. He saved Samuel Smith's wife in childbearing and revived the newborn child. No wonder Joseph Smith loved him, right? Fellow physicians living in Nauvoo used ergot, that is off of the rye and the wheat. It's a fungal growth. In the obstetrical practices, and we have no reason to believe that William's skills were any different. They had these herbal physicians in their Mormon company, in the towns, involved in their temples, involved with the religion, and involved with their everyday life. Frederick G. Williams wasn't the only one. One aspect of William's involvement, and this is just so much fun, <laughs> you know, in early Mormonism, was his mission journey to proselytize to, guess who? The Lamanites, the Native American Indians in 1830 and 1831, very early on in the church. Guess who went? Williams. Yeah, Joseph Smith revealed to Oliver Cowdery and three other elders that they were to commence their missionary efforts to the Lamanites. That's what Smith called the Native American Indians. And scout the location for a satellite stake or, an org or a congregation. And he wanted that organized in Missouri. And so... Uh, during this journey, the missionaries met Williams and he joined the group to meet with and proselyte to the natives near modern Kansas City. And that's in Missouri in a native settlement known as Caw Township. For a botanically centric physician, an opportunity to meet with the so-called Lamanites and intermingle knowledge of herb craft and mysticism with the people who had been using American plants for millennia would have been an exciting prospect for this doctor physician, no doubt. This newfound knowledge of Indian medicine, as evidenced by multiple advertisements, Williams published in the Quincy Whig from 1839 to 1842. So we know he was a liaison between the American Indians with his physician knowledge and Joseph Smith. We know that because he was advertising it for four years. This is not guesswork. This is what actually happened. See, you won't get this in Sunday school. An entheogenic doctor, physician, is very, very, very close with Joseph Smith, and he sends him on missions to the Native Americans, whom later came to visit Joseph Smith in Nauvoo and would only talk with Joseph Smith 
the great chief is what they called him. Other of the Mormons, when they visited, they said, well, he's not here right now. Can we talk to you? And Chief Keokuk said, no, I want to talk to the great chief, Joseph Smith, because, of course, they were very well known to each other through Frederick G. Williams, if not direct contact between the Indians and Joseph Smith himself. This is all just so fascinating. In fact, I'll, I'll get to it later. I'll probably get it this afternoon or uh, this evening. I may have to do yet another afternoon session here, man. It's already getting up in time and I'm not making any progress. Oh, I've got to have a swig of water. Um, I may very well do another two o'clock, two o'clock to four o'clock session today, and then a six o'clock session tonight. This is so much fascinating material. I can't, it is just really interesting. So, uh, well, and here we go. So the overwhelming logistical constraints of supplying scores or hundreds of Mormons on multiple occasions with various plant medicines, this could have been satisfied. So how would they satisfy this enormous demand? That's a good question. That How would Joseph Smith have pulled this off is what they're asking, right? Well, they could use the experienced Thomsonian botanical physician like Frederick G. Williams with his herbarium. He had a herbal farm, a herbarium. As evidence of their close fraternity, Joseph Smith named one of his children after Frederick G. Williams. And Smith had a strong and previously unremarked tendency to draw physicians close to him. Here's a pattern. Here's another pattern that just kind of helps see a couple more connections here. Smith actually had a protense, a, a protense, a, anyway, he had let me just read this, will you? He began his career. Yeah, he put physicians close to him and placed them in positions of close confidence, propensity. That was the word I was trying to remember. Boy, didn't drink enough coffee this morning. My brain's still half asleep. Smith began his career as a seer. Now, understand, he began his career as a seer with the botanical physician, Lumen Walters. <laughs> yeah, in the treasure digging in his early, early youth. Okay, there's one. He later made Frederick Williams one of his top two or three confidants. In the early 1830s, Smith ordained him to counselor in the newly organized First Presidency. In the early 1840s, Smith made physician Willard Richards an apostle and his private secretary. I was not aware that Willard Richards was a physician either, but Smith sure was. Notice how he keeps the physicians very, very close to him. That's a significant pattern in this entheogenic hypothesis, I would propose, yeah. Also around the same time, he made physician John C. Bennett a counselor in the first place. John C. Bennett was also a physician, and he made him first counselor in the presidency and arguably his right-hand man and closest companion in the early 1840s. So there's four or five physicians throughout the course of Joseph Smith's lifetime that he really became bosom buddies with. So this 
increases the probability is how I would propose it. That's how I would put it. From a Bayesian point of view, the probability is upped because is this the kind of evidence that we would expect to see if Joseph Smith was involving entheogenic substances in his religion? Actually, it does make good sense. We do see the, the right kinds of people and the right kinds of association with others, the Native American people. So this ups the probability. See, Bayes' theorem isn't any more difficult than that. Okay, and now here is another picture of uh, golden mushrooms. And and these one of these authors, he actually took pictures of, uh, oh yeah, right here. There's the golden Amanita muscaria variation. And this is found just right outside of Kirtland, Ohio, this yellow mushroom here. Very Carl Ruck describes the mythological symbolisms in the ancient religions based on the various different uh, kinds of stages in life of the mushroom and the shapes that the mushrooms take in various stages. We saw that former Amanita muscaria that was the red one that looked like the chalice, the holy grail. This one looks like uh, uh, a little man. And there are little gnomes in the fairy tales. We say they aren't real. That's because we stupidly literalize the symbolism. We concretize the metaphor. And so we remain in our ignorance. The fairy tales are true. They're giving us a symbolic interpretation of the food of the gods. That's Carl. That's one of multitudinous Carl Rock's propositions. That is so very, very eye-opening. I will do some videos using Carl Rock's material. I've been wanting to for two years since I found him. But oh yeah, both. Yeah, and he's talking about the various types of plants that were available, which were psychoactive, the psilocybin, the uh, Amanita muscaria, and so on and so forth. And he's describing their drug uh, situation, how they primarily facilitate visions and ecstasies during divinatory and shamanic healing ceremonies, or else it can happen during religious rituals. And it can happen in witchcraft, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and he talks about during the 1676 rebellion by Virginia settlers, hungry British soldiers consumed this Datura plant, and then they hallucinated for 11 days. And it is these symptoms, the same symptoms, that were exhibited in Kirtland, Ohio, 1830 and 1831. Really interesting there. And then he talks about uh, this particular uh, type of mushroom ranges from Rhode Island to Kentucky, and it's especially common in the Ohio River Valley. Yeah, and that's that golden mushroom that I just showed you. That's the mushroom, he says, was spread all over the eastern, northern, and southern United States. Easily available to the physicians, easily available to the doctors of herbs, easily available to Joseph Smith, who brought in those types of people to associate with. So the probability is growing, is what these guys are trying to say. 
I will say it that way. And then the Amanita muscara mushrooms, of course, uh, they grew around Kirtland, Ohio. They're widely distributed in woodlands and forests. And Carl Ruck is also huge on this too. Yeah, he shows, and, and they are in Northeastern America. They're also all over in Europe, Russia, the steppe. They're everywhere in the old world too. So um, they can be found growing in a circle or a fairy ring around its host tree. And there's numerous, the fire, the fairy ring can be striking in, a, in appearance, especially as the mushroom matures and takes on a golden color enhanced by the early morning or evening light. This is the golden fleece that Jason on the Argonaut went and acquired. Carl Ruck is huge on that. Some of these old ancient Greek legends and stories also are describing the symbolism of the Amanita Muscara. It's, it's, it's fantastically interesting how this all works. And then he says Amanita Muscaria may be the oldest entheogen known, with some believing its use began after the last ice age. <laughs> and that was in northern Eurasian forest belt and spread north following the retreating polar ice caps approximately 11,000 years before the present. That's what I was saying earlier. Yeah. So so this is uh, this goes way back. There's no question about that. Oh, uh, hang on here. Here we go. Let me read this. And it was used as an entheogen by Siberian shaman for millennia. Absolutely. Further, Indo-European speaking groups developed a vocabulary pertaining to the shamanic use of the mushroom. And they followed centuries later by the priests of the Vedic culture who sang hymns in praise of the Soma, the sacred plant and the sacred drink pressed from the plant, which was God. Really interesting. The Buddhist adepts from the second to the ninth century of the common era. So, I mean, we're talking centuries and centuries here in the other lands, in the Buddhist lands. Uh, they may have been ingesting this mushroom as an entheogen. The Amanita muscara also appears in alchemy. It also appears in Christianity. It also appears among free and adept Freemasons, and we argue that it appears in the dreams and visions of the Joseph Smith family. And we explored a little bit of that, Lucy's first vision, Joseph Sr.'s first vision last night. So and the, so what they're trying to do, they're delineating. Now, here, here is a picture, here is a picture of the ergot fungus that grows on uh, the grains wheat and rye, barley, etc. And they actually speculate that this was the cause of the uh, the witch hunt mania, not only in Europe, but in, in America also. And then there's another picture. Uh, so they're, they're just trying to describe the the overpopulation of the various types of hallucinogenic substances that were easily available to the physicians who were associating with Joseph Smith, as well as to Joseph Smith and his family, his friends, etc. This appears in alchemy. Oh yeah, and I, I already said that. The physicians Lumen Walters, Frederick G. Williams, John C. Bennett may have provided Joseph Smith with visionary ergot. They would have easily known about it and had been manipulating it 
as physicians. And so, of course, being the closest associates with Joseph Smith, we can say the probability is exquisitely high that they were sharing their knowledge with him. Use of ergot for these purposes included the 1840s Nauvoo era in Illinois, where it was available to Mormon physicians. William Shelley argues that ergot use as an entheogen can be traced through the Greco-Roman world, through the worship of Mitra and the Hebrew scriptures into the activities of the early Christians, and from there to the hidden tradition of alchemy. And uh, so, so the, the realistic timeline that come down from antiquity is easily available and can be matched, can be discovered and shown, is what they're saying here. These alkaloids are believed to constitute the Kikion elixir of the greater Eleusinian mysteries, and that was the very famous, very, very famous and very controversial text by Wasson, Ruck, and uh, what's his name? Oh, Hoffman, of Hoffman, sorry. Dr. Hoffman, The Road to Eleusis. The problem is they published this at the wrong time. They published this just at the beginning of the war on drugs in the United States because the politicians are too damn ignorant to inform themselves. And so they just, they really made a mess of things. Nowadays, we know that these guys got it right. No question. So, uh, that's that. Uh, let me skip here. Oh, and this is the other part. Yeah, I gotta show you this. Now, this is the. Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta drink some water here. Now I get. To, oh, and I'm at an hour and a half. I'm gonna go a little longer than this. Let's see, 11.30 my time. Yeah, I'm going to go a little longer. I, I want to share at least this next part with you because this is just, this is exquisite. So the life cycle of ergot lends itself to allegory in esoteric Judeo-Christian as it does in spiritual alchemy and Freemasonry. For instance, the manna which Moses said came from heaven. We all remember that story, right? This tastes like wafers made with honey, according to Exodus 16, 14 in the King James. So this is a description that actually is consistent with Ergot's honeydew stage. It actually has a honeydew stage. Is that not incredible? So while undetected ergot infects breads and causes disease, the water-soluble alkaloids can be added to bread, making it an entheogenic Hebrew sacrament. Consistent with entheogenic use of ergot, Moses tells the tribes of Israel that manna is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat, Exodus 16, 15. So there we go. This is a theme echoed in the Christian era when Jesus says, here is the bread of life. Yeah, John 6, 30. So the next figure that I'm going to show you here comes from 1200, the great Canterbury Psalter. Let me show it to you first. First, there's the, there's the, the, the manna. 
Look at that photo. Look at that painting. That's a painting of Jesus with the mushrooms. Isn't that amazing? And there it is again. The mushroom head that looks just like in that Christian painting circa 1200 of the Common Era. What are they doing painting Jesus with mushrooms like that for? Here's why. It's titled, God Creates Plants, showing God with four mushroom-appearing figures below him. Now, all five figures have uplifted hands seeming to mirror each other. I want you to notice that detail. The mushrooms and Jesus all have the upraised hands here in this Christian art piece. Okay? What's the point of that? I'll tell you the point of that. The medieval Psalter reveals esoteric Christianity's fascination with entheogenic mushrooms. So in this figure, God appears to wear an Amanita mushroom cap showing its gill side down, while the leftmost figure appears to be a stylized psilocybe mushroom, and the far right figures, it actually represents the stromata of an ergot fungus sclerotium. So let me show this to you again so that you can see the further details. Notice the robe of Jesus is red and his tunic is white. That is the perfect color combination of the Amanita muscara. And then the different head shapes of those mushrooms are showing that it's not just one type of entheogen, but it goes across the board. There's varieties of the bread of life, so to speak, right? A Mason and early Mormon convert, John C. Bennett, was a practicing physician and obstetrician. There is circumstantial evidence that Bennett himself, accused of administering, quote, medicine to induce abortion, was familiar with the medical uses of ergot. Lumen Walters or Frederick G. Williams likely had the education and practical training to cultivate and also to harvest and to prepare the psychoactive materials associated with ergot for the Kirtland Temple. That is entirely probable. Bennett would have been qualified to safely prepare visionary ergot as a ceremonial entheogen in the Nauvoo temple. Very interesting how during the two temple periods, Joseph Smith had beforehand acquired very good physicians and he kept them close and he became good friends and he involved them in the religion. This is precisely the kind of evidence we would expect to see if this hypothesis has any kind of validity, and it appears to do so. Oh, and then they go on to talk about peyote. And here's a picture of peyote. Now, this was a big one for the Indians down in the South and the Southwest. Guess where? In the Texas Territory. 
And where was Joseph Smith attempting to get a group of Mormons to migrate to Texas? He wanted a colony of Mormons in Texas. This is the famous Council of the 50 Deliberations. You can read about that in the Joseph Smith papers. I've made a video on that too, on the Council of the 50 and how they were attempting. They weren't sure whether to go out west or to go down south into Texas. And Joseph Smith sent an expedition down there because the peyote there was in astonishing abundance. And so Smith knew that because he had scouts scouring the United States looking for places for the saints to go because they knew ultimately they were not safe in Nauvoo. They needed more, more safe places. Indians regard the peyote as a panacea in medicine, a source of inspiration. It is the key which opens to him all the glories of another world. And you just can't help it. DNC 76 comes immediately to mind, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, for real, that's not even a joke. But that, that, for all the world, it's like they're talking, they're showing, uh, yeah, that's, that's how this works. So typifying Native America's feelings about peyote, Comanchero, War Chief Kana Parker, once spoke of the advantage peyote offered the North American religion over those in the United States. He said, the white man goes into his church house and he talks about Jesus, but the Indian goes into his teepee and talks to Jesus. Wow. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Yeah. And the Indians received their inspiration from the great father, while the white man receives his through the book they have. There is the difference. Yeah, that's huge. Come on, that's huge. That, that is Joseph Smith who had promised his converts visions of God. Well, of course, he's going to be naturally interested in the ceremonial use of peyote for Mormon ceremonies and rituals, of course. And he even had physicians surrounding him. And then he had other Mormon elders who were willing to go on missions to the Native American Indians. And in fact, because of those missions, the Indians felt comfortable in coming and visiting Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. And this is where Joseph's own wife, Emma, swapped herbal recipes, herbal recipes, with the chief Keokuk's own wife, the knowledge was obviously there. Even though it's not explicitly a smoking gun, it's definitely a bullet hole, just like I was talking about last night with the analogy these guys use. So I uh, won't, won't talk about that for now. Okay, and, and then I'm going to call it good for now. I'm at a minute 45, minute 42. I'll call it good. Uh, it looks like I've got 
Oh, see, I'm only, yeah, I'm literally only halfway through this paper. Wow, man. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, spread the word if you want. Those of you who are here, you'll be able to benefit from this. Uh, I will do another session. I'm going to go eat some breakfast or lunch now. Yeah, it's going on noon. I'm going to go have some lunch and relax for just an hour or so. I will come back here at one o'clock. And from one to three, I will proceed to share some interesting information with you on this. Uh, and we are just now getting, yeah, all of this leads up to the first vision. I told you I was going to get into the first vision today, and I will, absolutely. So this afternoon at one o'clock, I will come on for two hours. And then, of course, tonight at six o'clock will be my main uh my main regular live session and I will be back at six o'clock and I'll see if I can try to wrap up this incredible study up. So anyway, thanks for coming, man. Uh, I will, I will be back at one o'clock this afternoon. That's in uh, two and a half, uh, one and a half hours. So let's go take a one and a half hour break and we'll continue our analysis. All right, you guys, I'll see you then. Woohoo.